Amen. You can be seated. What a great crowd for a holiday weekend. I'm so proud of you. Good for you. <laughs> and that applause was just how great you are, right? No. Um, you know, Jesus said to his closest followers uh, when they gathered for the Last Supper, I have eagerly desired to share this with you. And um, in two weeks on the 15th, we kind of go to normal week-to-week schedule. And on that Sunday, we get to share around the Lord's table together. And it's my prayer that it will be profound and personal and meaningful. I loved to share communion with God's people, and I never wanted to get old. Never wanted to just be sort of routine. So I'm praying that God will meet us that day. When we get to the 15th, um, our first service will be just a little quieter than usual, and our second service will be as loud and rowdy as usual. How's that? Okay. And, uh, you, you know, there are different tastes and styles for different people, and we want to minister to everyone because we want to be a family and be together. Is that okay? We'll be a family and we'll be together. Now, next week, however, is outside. Are you ready? Now, I hope you're praying for the weather. A week ago, the forecast was perfect. Yesterday, it was, eh, okay? So uh, we're going to have a backup plan no matter what the weather. But wouldn't it be great to all be together and be outside together? Amen, Pastor Glenn. It would be great. Okay. Now, some of you have one of these. Can I see these? Would you hold them up? Or uh, or a horn, a little party horn. Okay, now I'm going to need your help because today we are in VBS, the grown-up edition, boys and girls. And we are going to tell the story of Queen Esther. And the story of Queen Esther is told every year in the middle of March in the Jewish tradition. And it marks the Feast of Purim. The Feast of Purim is an annual reminder of the story told in the book of Esther in the Older Testament. If you have your Bible, you have your pew Bible there, you want to follow along. It's the second book before the Psalms, okay? Almost every Bible, take it, open it in the middle, it'll be Psalms. Back up two books, you got Esther, okay? Now, when the story is told, in a little bit I'll give you some instructions on how to use these, because there's a bad guy. And when the bad guy's name is mentioned, all the children in all the families of Jewish families in America to this day make noise. They usually have those, I think they're called Gregors. You spin them and they make that nasty rattly sound. They sound evil because the man is evil. But we're going to get to him in just a bit. Our story begins with the true story of God's people who are in exile in Persia. In fact, Their situation is so bleak that this is the only book in the Bible with one particular characteristic. It does not contain the name of God. There are those who question whether it should be in the Bible because it doesn't contain the name of God. But as we'll see, God's fingerprints are all over this story. And I think it's pretty fascinating because sometimes God does his best work when we're not looking, when we don't recognize him, when we don't think of it as a religious experience, God is still at work. Isn't that true? Yes, that is true. When it's not a religious experience, God is still at work. And we're going to find that out in this story. The children of Israel 
have been taken into captivity by the Persians, the king Xerxes has uh, subjugated them and brought them to the city of Susa, the capital, where in his typical fashion, he is uh, a shallow, self-centered, vain man. As often happens to the king, his power goes to his head. And the story opens in the first chapter with him throwing a party, not just any party, a three-month-long a crazy blowout party for one reason only, to show off to his friends how powerful he is, how much money he has. And so he brings out all of his nicest things, all of his most beautiful and exquisite table setting. He serves the finest food. And when everybody's in high spirits, he sends the message to the queen, Vashti, Vashti, put on your best robe. And come out and do a dance for us all and show yourself off. And the queen says no. Which upsets everybody because the queen's not supposed to say no. Now, remember, this is a long time before today. Wives were supposed to do exactly what their husbands said. But times have changed. <laughs> so, so, when the queen says no, it causes a huge controversy. What are we going to do? The king calls in the nobleman. He says, what should we do? She said, no, she's embarrassing me. She didn't come and show herself off. And so these wise men, quote unquote, say you need to get rid of her. Because if she gets away with that, then all the women will start not doing everything their husband says. Anyway. (laughs) And so he banishes Queen Vashti and starts a search for a new queen. And being the kind of king he is, being wired up the way he is, he only wants one thing. She has to be gorgeous. He wants a babe. (laughs) A babe to sit beside him on the throne and make him look good. So they begin the search. They look for all the beautiful young women in all the land. They search for the fairest of the fair. And among them is chosen Esther Hadassah. This young woman is Jewish, but she doesn't tell anybody. They bring her to the harem at the king's palace. They give her 12 months of beauty treatments. It says they give her fragrant oils and perfume. And you can only imagine how that goes for a whole year. And then uh, when the time is right, each girl spends a night with the king in this pagan culture where marriage is not honored as we honor it today. And so the king gets his pick and he picks her. Queen Esther rises to this position, although at the beginning of our story, it's really sort of only, uh, you know, a position of uh, being pretty and hanging out with the king and having her own space in the palace. But we'll see how God uses that and uses her. Another key person in the story is Esther's older relative. It doesn't say exactly how they're related. She may be his niece or his cousin. His name is Mordecai. Mordecai is the good guy in this story. Uh, Since Esther is an orphan, he takes her under his wing. He coaches her and mentors her. At first, he tells her, don't tell anybody you're Jewish, and she obeys and doesn't. And then it says that once she was selected king, every day he would come by and check on her, talk with her, find out what was going on inside the palace, give her counsel and advice. And she took his advice very carefully. 
And so, one day, Mordecai, who's an official of sorts, he sits at the king's gate, um, overhears a plot by two unhappy guards. They decide that things haven't been done fairly and they're going to get the king and they're going to assassinate him. And Mordecai overhears it. He goes to the queen. He tells the queen and she tells the king and the plot is foiled. And the Bible says that that is carefully recorded in the annals of the kingdom. Well, as this story begins to take on a little more meaning, the the bad guy that I spoke about earlier, uh, Haman comes to the fore. Uh, This guy is so full of himself, he he rises to become second in the kingdom, second only to the king, a man of power and wealth. And he's the kind of guy that wants everybody to know it and show it. And so when he comes into a public space, he expects everybody to bow down. And all of the king's officials do exactly that because they know this guy. They know what he's like. They know what's going to happen. It'll be big trouble if they don't. Except one won't. Mordecai. And though it doesn't explicitly say, it says that when the other officials asked him why he wouldn't bow down, he said he was Jewish. Ah, he's a Hebrew. He's part of the children of Israel. He knows there is only one true God to whom we should bow and worship. Uh, Remember Daniel? He wouldn't bow down. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and... That's right, shake the bed, make the bed, and into bed you go, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they wouldn't bow down either. Because once you know the one true God, you're not going to bow down to anybody else who sets them up as themselves up as God. And so Haman hates Mordecai. He hates him to the point that he wants to kill him. He hates him to the point that he doesn't just want to kill him. He finds out that he's Jewish. And so he determines to annihilate all the Jews in the kingdom of Persia. That's what hate will do to you. It'll eat you up. It'll consume you. It'll obsess you. Unchecked evil can become an incredible force in someone's life. And so every time the story of Esther and Mordecai is told, when you get to the name Haman, you understand he's almost a personification of the evil in the world. So, If you'll help me out, I want to tell a little bit of this story the way a Jewish family would. Everybody got their noisemaker ready? Whenever I say the name Haman, you blow your horn or just hiss and boo. And if you have one of these, you make a little noise. All right? Okay. Now, the wicked enemy of God's people, the evil Haman... Goes to the shallow and impressionable king with a plot. The wicked Haman says, There's a certain people gathered and separate among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from everyone else's. These people are troublemakers. So, if you'll let me, I, Haman, will personally oversee the extermination of every single one of the Jews. 
And just to make it worth your while, O king, I will take money from my personal fortune. I, Haman, will give you 10... I'm getting a little carried away over here. All right. Give you 10,000 talents of silver from my personal fortune just to make it worth your while. Now the bribe offered by the wicked Haman amounted to over 300 tons of silver. More than Persia's, Persia's gross national product for a year. He hates them so much. This is why we understand the evil is in the heart of the wicked Haman. Now, knowing the kind of guy the king is and has revealed himself to be party-loving, ego-driven, inch-deep, mile-wide king, he listens and he goes along and he tells the evil Haman... Do what you want. Here's the ring off my finger. You have my authority. Keep your money and kill the Jews. And so the plot is hatched. And the Hebrews in Persia are in imminent danger because of the plot of the evil, vile, wicked Haman. Thank you very much. We'll stop now. (laughs) Gets a little crazy when it happens all the time. So the word of the plot begins to spread. Mordecai hears about it. He tears his clothes and puts on sackcloth and ashes and goes out into the public square. In fact, it says he goes to the king's gate. And you were never to go to the king's gate in sackcloth. Why does he do it? Well, he reminds me of Martin Luther King Jr. This is public disobedience. This is, this is civil disobedience. This is a public protest. And he gets all the Jews in all the kingdom to join with him. And they all put on sackcloth and ashes. And they all go out in public. And they all create a disturbance. Why? Because if they don't, they're dead. Because this evil has gotten so much momentum and impetus. The law has been sent out. Everybody's just waiting for the day to come. Because the king's law, the law of the Medes and the Persians, the law that cannot be rescinded, says that on this certain day, everyone can take their vengeance on the Jews, steal all their property, kill every man, woman, and child, and get away with it. And so this thing is beginning to get ahead of steam, and the word gets to the queen that something's going on, that Mordecai's acting strangely. So she sends one of her servants out to ask exactly what's happening. Now this is where the personal principles begin to unfold. You see, uh, Esther's probably just been enjoying her life as the queen. She's got incredible wealth and comfort. She has beautiful clothes and a life of privilege. Like a lot of people, she probably just thinks, you know, God's blessing me. This is just a good thing. But Mordecai, Mordecai is her mentor. Mordecai has the courage to speak into her life at the critical moment, the word of the Lord. You need to go to the king now. You are the only one who can save us. You must plead for our lives. 
Esther's first reaction is not just to do what Mordecai says. She knows something he doesn't know. Two things. First of all, they all know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, that they be put to death. Kings in this era, like many eras in history, lived a life of extreme luxury and limitless power, and they only saw the people they wanted to see when they wanted to see them. To come in, to barge in, unannounced or uninvited, meant that your life was on the line. The only exception to this death by interruption rule was if the king was in a particularly good mood or was glad to see you, he might raise his golden scepter and extend it toward the intruder, thus sparing their life. But going uninvited was to risk your life. Plus, Esther knows one thing Mordecai doesn't. She hasn't seen the the king face to face in over 30 days. Now think about that. They are husband and wife. But the queen has to share her party-loving, hedonistic husband with a harem of beautiful young women. He is not a God follower. He is not a devoted husband of one wife. And it's been a month since he has slept with her. And she begins to think he's interested in someone else, at least not her. Now the older, wiser mentor, Mordecai, speaks up. Yes, he loves the queen. Yes, he understands she doesn't want to risk it. But he also knows that she has, been come, she has come to this particular moment in her life for a divine purpose. When they told Mordecai what Esther had said, Mordecai sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. That's amazing, right? I mean, it's faith on the one hand that God will protect his people somehow. We don't know how, but somehow. But there is this warning that if she declines, if she refuses, she plays it safe. She herself will lose her life. And then that last verse, perhaps the most well-known verse in this entire book. But who knows that but, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. You're not queen just for the thrill of sitting on a throne. You're not in the royal palace just so you can accumulate an exquisite wardrobe and precious gems and exotic fragrances. No, God's plan is bigger. Your purpose is even more important. God has raised you, young lady, to become the queen of Persia for his own particular purpose and plan so that you could be the one to save us in this critical moment. I love that. I love the fact that Mordecai wouldn't stop with the safe thing. He said the true thing, the thing that needed to be said. And it's my prayer that all of us have somebody who will speak the truth into our lives, even if it's not comfortable, maybe especially if it's not comfortable. 
Somebody who sees past the surface and knows us, knows our heart, knows our gifting, knows our calling, and will call out the best in us. That's the first thing God uses in the life of Esther is the influence of her mentor. Esther, come on. If you say no, you will miss the purpose of your whole existence. Proverbs 27, 17 is a familiar verse. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Notice the writer doesn't say flannel sharpens flannel. (laughs) It feels good, but flannel doesn't sharpen anything. Iron sharpens iron. There's conflict, there's sparks, there's strength in iron. I want somebody in my life who will speak the truth to me, who will be iron to me. Even if there's some sparks, even if there's disagreement, I pray that God would give me, bless my life with the truth telling of a true friend. And I pray that for you too. The second thing God uses in the life of Esther is this critical moment. You know, most Christ followers I know would say that when they look back and ask themselves, when did I grow the most? When did I learn the most in my Christian walk? Almost always it's in testing times, maybe even painful times. You know, the book of James begins, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. When testing comes your way, he says, welcome them as friends. You know, it isn't just the problem that produces the growth, it's our response that produces the growth. It's having the courage to do the thing that God calls us to do, even when it's hard. You know, I'm sure you've been through some tough times, I was thinking about Christmas of 09 when my stepdad died on Christmas Day and my mom died three days later. And uh, in the aftermath of that, you know, as God ministered to my heart, the Bible says that God comforts us with his comfort so we can share that comfort with others. And I believe that's what God has done in my life. I'm sure he's done it in yours who've been through those kind of deep waters. And we sang, the first song we sang today, uh, Let Everything That Has Breath Praise the Lord, was all I could do to get up here and challenge everybody to to use that song to praise the Lord with all our breath. And and Matt and the team did such an amazing job. I didn't feel like I needed to say anything because there was this divine moment, right? Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. My mom was in her 90s and couldn't do a whole lot and was feeling, you know, sad about, the loss of strength and energy in her life. And, and here I am, you know, trying to be both her son and in a way her pastor. And she said, why, why am I here? Why am I still alive? I can't do anything. And the Lord brought that verse to mind. I said, as long as you have breath, you can praise the Lord. You may not understand it. You may not feel like it, but God can use every moment of your life. Even your breathing can be a song of praise to God. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? Amen, Amen, Pastor Glenn, that's good. Keep breathing, right? Keep breathing. As long as you're breathing, 
Praise the Lord. It's in the testing times. It's in the hard times that God grows us up and grows us deep. And that's what he did in Esther's life. And so we follow the rest of the story. And I love what she does next. Um, God not only uses the testing, but Esther responds to the testing in a very interesting way. Now, remember what's happened here, right? The enemy, the evil Haman has has hatched this plot, gone to the king, got a law passed. Everybody's planning to exterminate the Jews on this particular day. Mordecai's come and asked Esther to go and intercede and spare them all. And what does she say? You gather your people and fast and pray for three days. Go gather all the Jews in Susa, that's the capital city, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days night or day, and I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, would you read the rest out loud with me in a good, strong voice? I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. Don't you love that? Woo, the tiger roars. She's got steel in her spine. This is no little beauty queen Barbie doll, right? That's where she started out. It reminds me of the true story of some civil rights activists uh, uh, who were in the, in the cause of, of women's uh, power and position who in the early 90s went and shoplifted some Barbie dolls and G.I. Joe dolls. True story. And they were ones that were talking. They took the voice boxes out and they switched them. So that when the you know, little girl pulls her Barbie doll string, the doll says, <laughs> vengeance is mine. You know, <laughs> Attack, you know, and so then when you pull the string on the Barbie doll, uh, that's what the Barbie doll says. When you pull the string on the GI Joe, the GI Joe says, "Shop till you drop," you know, <laughs> and it kind of. So then they put them all back. True story. That's what happened. Well, I don't know how it happened, but I know that God performed surgery on Esther's heart, right, on Esther's spirit, and this a beauty queen becomes uh, a warrior for God. If I perish. I perish. And something happens when she's waiting on God for three days. What a, what a counterintuitive plan. I think almost all of us would say, okay, let me figure this out. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll get a plan together and I'll go and I'll fix it right away because the, the danger is imminent. But no. She says, I'm going to settle in and settle down and get alone and listen to God and let God work. When we work, we work. But when we pray, God works. And so this, what, a, what a powerful example to all of us in the hard times. You know, fasting and prayer is an interesting subject. Those times in my life when I felt particularly tested, I have used the spiritual discipline of fasting. There's something about it. It, it clarifies your, your heart, your mind, your spirit. It focuses you. And I, lo- and I love the fact that she did it for three days. You know, God is the, is the God of the third day, right? God is the God of the third day. Uh, Moses, when he's about to go up on Mount Sinai and receive Sinai and receive the Ten Commandments, he has the people fast and pray. How long? Yeah, you can, you can probably guess that it would be three days because you'd be right. When Joshua is about to lead the children of Israel through the Jordan River and they're going to step into the water. Remember that? They step into the water and the water's going to part. He asks them to pray and wait on God for how long? 
Three days. Jonah is in the belly of the big fish for how long? Three days. And then he gets barfed up onto the beach. I'm I'm pretty sure Jonah prayed, God, help me go out the same way I came in. You kind of have to think about that one. Or don't, one or the other. Because God is the God of the third day. We wait on him. He is at work. We don't see what he's doing. And then he shows up in power. And on the third day, a crucified carpenter who has been sealed in a stone-cold tomb comes back to life, roars back to life. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, God is the God of the third day, and we are third-day people. And we believe that God hears and answers our prayers. And when everything seems bleak and impossible, and we are at the end of our human ability and human wisdom, we go to him. We wait on him. We call on him and watch what he does. And so Esther, after three days, goes to the king, not knowing if it will cost her life. If I perish, I perish. But God does a miracle. The king holds out his scepter and she comes and touches it. And he says, what do, what do you want? What can I do for you? Anything up to half my kingdom. She knows the king. She says, let's have a party. Because there's nothing the king likes better than a party. And uh, we'll have a party at my place. And if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fill my fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. This is actually the second party, this one. She, the first time she goes to the king, he says, I'll give you anything up to half my kingdom. She says, come to a party. She comes, he comes to the party. Then this happens. At the second party, he asks her again, what do you want? What are you after? She says, come to another party. Notice, she doesn't blurt it out. She doesn't just say, well, there's a bad guy and he's trying to kill all my people and it's Haman, he's your second in command. She doesn't do that. She uses incredible tact and wisdom. And I believe God God put that in her heart and mind during that three days. So she does the perfect thing. And notice that in that scripture, she said, but only come to the party if you want to grant my request. (laughs) How cool is that? Like she's setting him up. (laughs) It's like, I'm not going to tell you what I want, but I'm going to give you another party and just come to the party if you're going to do what I want. Wow, I love that. Meanwhile, in the backstory, Haman is continuing to brew and stew and his hatred is consuming him. He... He tells his family, his wife and friends that he can't go on living as long as this Mordecai is allowed not to bow down to him. So his wife says, well, do something about it. You know, don't just complain about it. Go and do something about it. Go build a gallows 75 feet high and go tomorrow to the king and, and just tell the king, I mean, you're second in command. Tell the king you want to kill this guy. And so he decides that's what he'll do. But in the morning, when he goes to the palace to tell the king that he wants him to kill Mordecai, the king has had a sleepless night. For some reason, for some reason, he he just couldn't get to sleep. And so he decides that 
He wants to read. But when you're the king, you don't read for yourself. He calls the readers. The king's readers come. And they say, what do you want us to read? And the king says, well, I always like reading about myself. So uh, let's have, why don't you read the annals of the king? And they break out the book of the annals of the king. And what do they read? There was a day when there was a plot by two unhappy officials to assassinate the king. And the official named Mordecai was the one who exposed it and actually saved the king's life. And the king says, well, has anything been done to honor him? Well, no, it hasn't. Well, that's almost embarrassing, you know, for the king to have someone spare his life and not do anything to reward him. So the next morning when Haman comes in to ask the king to kill Mordecai, the king, before he can say anything, says, what should I do? What should the king do for the man he wants to show honor? Haman, assuming it's him, because, I mean, who else is better than Haman, right? Uh, Haman says, well, I think you should get a horse. Not just any horse. I think you should get one of the king's horses that you've ridden on. And I think you should put your royal regalia over it. You put your royal crest on the, over the head of the, of the horse. And I think you should get a robe, one of the robes you've worn, And I think you should put it on the man you want to honor and have the man you want to honor ride on the horse, the king's horse, and lead it through the city. And and have somebody really important leading the horse and calling out, this is the man the king wants to honor. And the king says, great plan, Haman, you do it for Mordecai. You do it for Mordecai. And Oh man, there could be nothing worse, right? There could be nothing worse. In humiliation, he does what what he told the king to do for himself. He now has to do for Mordecai. He goes home immediately afterward, tells his wife what happened. And she says, you're cooked. You're done. You're done. If God is in the middle, there's something about these Jews that you are opposing that's bigger than you. And just then, the assistants, the the soldiers come and take him, take Haman to the second banquet with the queen where the king says, enough of this, (laughs) enough parties, enough uh, back and forth. What do you want? Anything up to half my kingdom. King doesn't have much imagination. He just keeps saying up to half my kingdom, which by the way, he doesn't really mean. It's sort of just a nice polite way of saying, I'll give you anything you want, right? I'll give you something special. And she says, what I want is for you to spare my life and to spare the lives of all my people because there is an evil, vile man who has, who has begun a plot to wipe us out. And the king is moved and the king says, who, who would do such a thing? And she says, the evil, vile Haman sitting right here is the one and her life is on the line. It's him or her. And God intervenes and the king's heart is changed and the king almost immediately goes out and has Haman killed, executed on the very gallows that he had planned for Mordecai. And then the scripture says that now there needs to be a new second in command. Esther comes and brings her mentor Mordecai and introduces him to the king. The king takes off the signet ring that he had taken back. Remember when he told Haman, you can go and kill them? 
He gave them his ring to, as a symbol of his authority, but before Haman was executed, he took it back. Now he gives it to Mordecai. And he gives Haman's estate, the wealthiest man in all the kingdom, in all its entirety, to Esther. And Esther gives the estate to Mordecai. And these, friends, are the fingerprints of God. No, his name's not in the book. But how do you explain that of all the young women in the kingdom who were tested and considered to become the new queen, God chooses a young Jewish girl to ascend to the throne. And, and how do you explain that though this most powerful man in the kingdom has this evil plot, it all turns around on him and he ends up being hung on his very own gallows that he had planned to punish Mordecai. And how do you explain that the people of God are saved by the influence of this young girl who, at the beginning of our story, didn't even speak anything on her own? God is at work. His fingerprints are all over this. And he works in the lives of men and women, young people, who will listen to the advice of a wise mentor, who will see the challenging moments of life, the hard things, as an opportunity to grow. Who won't just go off and do what they think best, but will wait on God and listen for his lead and do whatever it takes to obey him, even if it costs our lives. I pray that for all of us because the same God who, who's all through this story, who works miraculously to change the course of history, he is our God. He is the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know that by saving the Jewish people, God continues the plan of salvation, right? Because it's through them that Christ comes. It's through the bold, risky faith of Esther that ultimately the plan of salvation is unfolded and becomes real. And the world is changed and our lives can be changed because of Jesus. There's nobody like Jesus. We love him. We serve him. We listen to him. We obey him no matter what. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this incredible story of a courageous young woman. But it isn't just her story, Lord. I know that in a way you want it to be our story. I pray today for anybody here who needed this particular admonition who needed this lesson at this time in our journey with you. Maybe there's somebody that's trying to stretch us and tell us the truth and we're not listening. I pray that you give us the courage to listen. Maybe we're in a hard place, a, a, a tough time, and we need to trust you and not run away from it. And Lord, all of us have those times when what we need most is to settle in and settle down and quiet our hearts and minds and listen to you. And maybe that's today. And I thank you that you are the God who saves your people. You are the God who sent Jesus Christ to die for us and live for us 
and live in us by the power of your Holy Spirit. So we open our lives to him today, to you today. Use us however you can, however you will, to be people who make a positive difference in the world in which we live. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, you know, the last several weeks we've said when the service is done that uh, some might like to stay and pray. I, I, I like to just be here at the front. If you'd like to talk, introduce yourself. If you'd like me to pray with you or for you, nothing I would rather do. We're going to sing a song of faith and response to receive the word of the Lord today, and then we'll be dismissed. So will you stand and let's worship the Lord. Lord, we love you, and we pray that as we go, we would go in your strength, in your power, to be a witness to how great you really are. So may your greatness live in us and shine through us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, the Lord go with us all.